I'm so glad you're here this morning. Each week, each Sunday morning, we have an opportunity to be able to open up God's Word. God's transforming Word. We believe that God's Word changes us. It gives us perspective. It encourages us. But it also convicts us. You know, once you come to faith, once each one of us come to a place in our life where we recognize that we need a Savior, we're messed up, we have fallen short of God's standard, and we recognize that Jesus died in our place so that our sin might be paid for, that that we can come into a relationship with God, our Father. <laughs> it's amazing. God changes you and me from the inside out. And as we grow in our up relationship and our relationship with God, it definitely affects our relationship with those in the church and those outside our walls. We're in a series called David, The Life of a King. David, as many of you know, was handpicked by God to be Israel's king because he was a man after God's own heart. We're going to wonder a little bit about that term in our text today. But a man after God's own heart is a man who has a relationship with God, one whose actions and thoughts please God. And we're going to find out that David... Well, did that most of the time. As we open our text today, David was a hero. David was a powerful king. Israel was really in a good place. And then it happened. The news leaked out. Israel's leader committed adultery and tried to cover up his sin by murder. And God was displeased. Oh, are we talking about the same guy? I've heard this story before, but but really? A man after God's own heart goes down this dark trail? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you are a great God, a wonderful God, an amazing God, a gracious God. We also know, God, that we desperately need you. As we open up your word and as we read about men and women who follow you and men and women that don't, we learn. We learn about you and we learn about us. Would you teach us today, God? Would would we try not to put you in a box or even just let this story kind of float over our heads? God, there's so much here today and I would ask that, that I would speak your truth And that you would be glorified. Father, we pray for those many churches, not only in our area, but all over the United States and the world that are preaching and teaching and encouraging the flock. We pray, God, that your kingdom would come. We pray, dear Lord, that your church would rise up, that they would be strengthened and obedient. We pray for a few churches right in our area. We pray, Father, for Life Spring, and we pray for new hope, and we pray for redemption. We know, God, that especially that church, that church that was started seven years ago, is stepping out in faith. We know they have a witness in Belvedere. We know that folks are coming to faith. We know, God, that Lives are being changed, and we are grateful, not only partnering with Adam for these last seven years, but just even now for the opportunity, Father, to be able to partner with them in getting a building. 
We pray that that happens. Not only that you would encourage us to give, Father, but but that other churches and other brothers and sisters would surround this young church. Lord, we pray for those who are downstairs, for those teachers. We, we pray for the kids. We pray, dear God, that your word would be shared in a way where our kids love you more at the end. We thank you for their faithfulness. And we thank you for all of the faithful folks, Lord, who all the way throughout the week and throughout this month, that they care for others. They shepherd. They strengthen. They encourage. We pray, Lord, that, that there would be a wave that you would receive honor and glory. And even now, God, as we think of the elections coming up, Lord, we don't even know how to pray sometimes. We know we are to honor our leaders and submit and, and listen to them. We pray, dear God, that you would put the right leaders in place. We ask that, God. Move even now. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's look at this story. Mostly because it can be our story. And if we're honest, nobody really wants that. You, you just don't. Remember, nobody wakes up and says, hey, I want to be a murderer. It usually doesn't work that way. But it happens. We usually put people who, well, commit these heinous sins in categories and, and we put them aside, and sometimes we don't even relate with them. But let me just remind you right in the very beginning, I'm pretty sure David walked closer to God than I ever will walk. I, I'm pretty sure David with all of his heart. I, I, I'm pretty sure God did not make a mistake and call him a man after his own heart. But how is it? How is it that David could fall so fast and so deep? I, I guess what I'd like to say is that we all need to listen. Because my guess is that every one of us can go down that exact same path. If we're not connected with God, if we don't walk with him, if we don't get our strength and perspective from him. Now, David's disobedience destroyed lives. And I'm going to keep saying things like this because that's what sin does. That's what rebelling against God does. And David didn't just fall. He was deceived and took specific steps away from God toward destruction. This is much more than a message about sexual sin, which is heinous in itself. This is about disobeying our loving Father. This is a message about how we can be deceived, how we can drift. And how we can look at the consequences that follow. So the question is this, right in the very beginning. Will you and will I learn the hard way? Or will we be able to see and understand and respond differently because of David's story? Maybe it's a wake-up call. Now, it all begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So you can turn your Bibles there. 2 chapter, or, or Second Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Some of the verses today will be up on the screen. 
So I encourage you again to open your Bibles or, or in some cases, because we're covering some large portions, I will summarize it. But I really think the passages, there's four chapters today that we're going to look at are so worthy to read and just sense what God is teaching you. But we start off 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. David stayed back. It was a time when normally kings would well, lead their armies. It was a time for them to go out and to conquer. But somehow, David stayed back. And the Bible actually doesn't tell us why he neglected his duty. I I have a few ideas. Perhaps he was selfish. It's just easier to sleep in rather than put on armor. Let's just face it. Maybe he needed rest, a Sabbath, a time to replenish and restore spiritually, emotionally, and physically. My guess is, is that David got lazy and went the selfish route. If this be the case, David was not walking with God because he was listening to his flesh. Folks, you're going to see a pattern here. And this is often the pattern. This is how it started with David. And actually, this is how, well, it starts with us. So there's a few steps we're going to go over. And step number one is on the path to destruction, the very first step that most of us would take as we start this spiral downward would be staying back. Or I would say, focusing on comfort. Whenever we begin to think we deserve something, the focus is on us. It makes us vulnerable. We make life about us. Thinking first about our kingdom begins the spiral downward, which actually ends in death. So right now, there wasn't anything so heinous that happened, but realistically, he was setting himself up. The focus on himself, staying back, and not doing what God had assigned him to do. Look at verse 2, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As uh, as he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent a message or sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. The scriptures tell us that David goes for a walk. He notices a beautiful woman. The notice wasn't a glance. The notice was a gaze. Now, granted, sexual sin is the focus and no doubt a common strategy for the enemy in many of our lives. David is already focusing on satisfying his own needs, though, before the stroll on the rooftop. So this temptation strategy works really well. Now, now bathing on a roof may seem odd to us, and I guess we're not going to go into that. But no matter what, if he had been walking with God, it would have been a glance. It wouldn't have been a gaze. 
hopefully you're not in a place where you see women bathing. But many days, each one of you, especially our men, have a choice of glancing or gazing. Now, many of our women have other issues. And, and we seem to dabble in areas of weakness. But realistically, as men just normally do life, the choice is always a glance or a gaze. Now, technically, when you start gazing, it's the Holy Spirit that sets off sirens, but David ignored them. So at this point, David inquires, who, who is that young lady? David did choose to gaze, and step number two is sinning mentally. I do believe the Spirit will be shouting here, and we can listen and confess our sin or not. David goes the not direction. He then takes action. He sends messengers to get her. Step three is to take action. Choose to be selfish and feed the flesh. You see, the flesh is our selfish self, which is enemies with the spirit. David is selfish. David is not walking with God. And he sets up his, his flesh really well. Now, now the question comes, how could David, who loved God, walked with God, knew the scriptures well, do this? Well, probably the same reason why any of us who is God's spirit living in us sin. The answer is simple. We don't know the enemy's strategy. Or if we do, we think we can battle the enemy in our own strength. You see, sin deceives and lies. Sin makes promises it cannot deliver. And we see that all the way back right in Genesis, right after creation, where Adam and Eve are put in a perfect environment. In Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, the scriptures tell us that while well, Adam and Eve had free reign, but they were not to eat of a certain tree. They could eat from everywhere else, but they couldn't eat from this tree. And the scriptures tell us that Satan had a plan. And, and he comes, and, and the first thing that he says to Adam and Eve is, did God really say that? Maybe put a little bit of doubt. Maybe, are, are you sure that's what he said? And then the second sentence that really came out is that he just said, you won't die. And what God told you is not really true. So why, why believe him? I, I think that fruit looks pretty good. I think you should take the fruit. And both enemies said, yeah, let's do it. And they took the fruit. Sin deceives and sin lies. Sin also blinds and distorts. David writes this psalm, 36 verses 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. Sin whispers to the wicked or to those who are not walking with God deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God at all. In their blind conceit, they cannot see how wicked they really are. Everything they say is crooked and deceitful. They refuse to act wisely or to do good. Sin blinds us. We don't really see how heinous it is. Our selfishness overrules and it distorts, really, the truth. 
Lastly, sin or the desires of the flesh war against our very souls. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes this, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires or for what the flesh desires because that wages war against your very soul. Now, we have to realize that the flesh is powerful. And we are told as believers not to provide an environment for the flesh to thrive. And some of you are gardeners, and, and, and I get that. And, and I'm sure if some of you just kind of threw out seed and, in your front lawn and, and go and check it every day, and hopefully those tomatoes grow, or hopefully those beans grow, or hopefully, it probably not can do so successful. But if you till the soil and you plant it in the right way and you water it and you put it in the right environment, then all of a sudden you get to enjoy this garden. And and I think it's the same way for the flesh. If we nurture the flesh, it's going to be in an environment where it's easy to disobey God. In Romans 13, starting in verse 13, remember this is Paul writing to a group of Christians. He had just got through pouring out his heart and and giving all kinds of doctrine and truth for them. And he says this, because we belong to the day, we're part of the light, Paul says. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity or immoral living or in quarreling and jealousies. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence or remember that Jesus lives in you. And then listen to this last line. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Now, how do we do this? How do we, shall I say, think about ways to encourage walking with God? Well, there are a few principles throughout the scriptures. We do not want to indulge our flesh. We do not want to put ourselves in an environment where we will fall. We do not want to put ourselves when we walk on the rooftop and we see a woman bathing that we sit there and peer and gaze. One of the things the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 15.33 is to stay away from evil companions. Watch who you hang out with. The scripture says, for bad company corrupts good character. The second suggestion I find is found in Proverbs 5, 8. Basically, Solomon says this, stay away from the prostitute's door. Say, oh, Rick, I am so glad you told me that one. You know, let's look at this a little bit differently. All right? In Proverbs 5, 8, it says, stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Solomon is saying this. If you go near, you put yourself in that environment, my guess is you're going to start spiraling downward. No matter what the sin is. Don't go near it. Don't put yourself in a spot where, again, it's easy to disobey. The flesh is strong. And then Jesus himself said something very unique in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. He basically says, stay away from anything that will cause you to stumble. And, and it's pretty unique because we all know our weaknesses. And if you don't, ask your wife. That's all. All right? You all know your weaknesses. You do. And what Jesus is literally saying is, stay away from any of those places 
so you don't stumble. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he's speaking right, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to be able to share with his disciples what kingdom living actually looks like. And most of us will read these verses and just kind of push it off as hyperbole. But let me read Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. So if your eye, Jesus says, even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Say, wait, Rick, we know that's hyperbole because, you know, anytime I lust, I'm not going to just, you know, pull my eyeball out. For one thing, I wouldn't be able to see very quickly and X, Y, Z, and we start rationalizing it. But I think what Jesus was saying is, don't mess with areas that will cause you to stumble. Don't dabble in it. Don't think you're strong enough. Don't think because you're 21 you can watch certain movies because you're very mature. And it goes on and on and on and on. Jesus is saying this. If you know your eye is going to cause you to stumble, you do drastic things. You protect yourself. You don't want to go down this road because sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. So it's worth it to protect yourself. And honestly, if you need to gouge out your eye, do it. Do it. By God's power, these are, hey, stay away from evil companions. Stay away from the prostitute's door. Stay away from anything that causes us to stumble. How about if we just flip that around? You and I have an opportunity to Put ourselves in environments to grow and to be nourished and to be encouraged. So hang out with those that love Jesus. And we know this isn't just the only people we are to hang out. We are salt and light. There will be times that we'll have relationships or be in presence with folks that don't love the Lord. We get that. But who are your buds? Who are your closest friends? Who Are they ones that encourage you? Are they ones that help you walk with Jesus? That's the definition of a good friend. Don't go toward the prostitute's door, but anything that will cause you to sin, stay away from it. And lastly, Instead of staying away from anything that causes us to stumble, why don't you go toward anything that helps you grow and love our Lord? So sometimes it's asking that question. How you want to spend the evening, what type of literature you want to read, how you want to spend your free time. Am I going to hang out with folks that will encourage me on the journey? Am I going to be in an environment that will, well, cause me to fall? Or what is it that makes me stumble? Oh, I want to stay away from that. Put me in a good spot. Now, in some cases, the scriptures actually says to flee, don't dabble. I call them stronghold sins, or maybe today's term would be addictions. Things that have such a death grip on you. Things that you know if absolutely that if something doesn't happen drastically, you'll continue to go down this pathway. And I think sex certainly is one of these stronghold sins, mostly because, especially men, are wired that way. The truth is, sex is amazing and sex is wonderful, but sex is reserved for your wife or for your husband. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul says this, to a church that lives in the middle of like Sodom and Gomorrah or Las Vegas, okay, if we want to look at it like that. And and this is what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, run from sexual sin. No other sin is so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immortality. Immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Literally, Paul is writing his last words to this young man. He says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. In other words, don't get in an environment where you will start to disobey God. Run from it. Don't dabble in it. Because I'm telling you, if David, a man after God's own heart, dabbled and fell, my guess is that's where every one of us will end up. So Paul says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, This is the cool part. Pursue righteous living. Run from and pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. And listen to this last part. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Now we have quite a bit to cover and there's not a lot of time to cover it. So I'm going to move a little bit quicker at this moment. Now, the story picks up starting at verse 6 and goes all the way through verse 27. And before I share this part of the story with you, I think the first word in verse 6 is really important. And that first word is then. Then. Then David sent word to Joab. Let me tell you what happened. It says, immediately, David acted like anyone caught in sin. He tries to cover it up. He tries to cover his butt, really, is what he's trying to do. So step four is covering up your sin. Now, if we read this, especially for the first time, maybe David's actions probably shock you. But they really shouldn't. Because that's where every one of us would do. Some of us get really drastic in covering up, well, sin. This is what David does. He sends for the husband, Uriah, and tries to send him home so he could sleep with his wife. He tries it twice, and it doesn't work. So then he's getting desperate. He thinks he's going to get caught. So he sends Uriah out in the front lines, and Uriah is killed. The scriptures tell us here that Bathsheba mourns her husband's death. But it almost seems then that David sends for Bathsheba. David marries the dead hero's pregnant wife. And they have a son. Do you, I mean, on the outside, whoa, David's a good guy. Isn't that great? David's caring for this poor lady. David, at this time, I believe, is thinking it's all well, but it is not. The carnage is everywhere. And what I want to say over and over and over again is that we are all capable of such destruction if we don't walk with God. And then look at verse 27, 2 Samuel 11, 27. But God... But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. David thought he covered his bases. David thought he was there scot-free. David thought, okay, let's just move on. And there's the statement. God was displeased. 
You see, sin displeases God because God knows as our heavenly father what is best. We don't break God's principles. God's principles break us. The lie that the enemy gives us is, hey, you know what? You can get away with this. You're smarter than the average bear. You can do this. No one will ever that. Yeah. We all have a choice at this time. We all come to a crossroad. We can run from God and continue down the destructive path, or we can repent and confess. So I've called step five the crossroads step five. And that means you are going to continue to run or confess or repent. Let me tell you what a man after God's own heart does. In chapter 12, starting at verse 1, the verse right before this, God's displeased. David's living large. David thinks everything's good. So, verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other one was poor. The rich man owned many great sheep or, or many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at a home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, Any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man and the, uh, for the one that he stole it for having no pity. Then just imagine this. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Nathan goes on a little bit more, shares the ramifications of of David's disobedience. And at this time, he hasn't confessed. He hasn't done anything. In fact, what I want you to know, it's been at least nine months David's been living with this. Probably up to a year. He thinks everything is just fine. Everything is good. Nathan comes as God's representative. And then verse 13, David breaks. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown, listen to this, utter contempt for the word of the Lord. By doing this, your child will die. You see, disobedience is showing utter contempt to what God is telling each one of us. Some of us look at this, and there are some other consequences. And sometimes we look at the scriptures, and we wonder why God acts this way. But the truth is, God only does what is right and just, and God knows what consequences are perfect for each one of us. And in David's case... There are three things that were going to happen as you read through this chapter. His baby that was just born will die. His family will experience war for the rest of his days. And his family will rebel against him. And I got to say this. I hate this story. But I love the way David shows us what repentance looks like. Sometimes we think repentance is casual. Sometimes repentance feels like, hey, I got caught. Hey, you know what? I'm sorry about that. Sometimes we even think repentance is only good for those really big heinous sins. But I'm pretty convinced as we walk with God that repentance 
is something that's very, very common for every believer, often. And in fact, if you can't even remember the last time you repented or confessed sin, my guess is you need to ask God some questions. Now, what's so cool is that we don't hear a lot of what happens here. But what I'd like you to do is turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. And I'm just going to read through some of Psalm 51. Because in Psalm 51, this is what David writes after this incident. And helps us understand what repentance actually looks like. And here's what he says. Psalm 51, starting at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. Listen to what David says. It haunts me day and night. Folks, remember, nine months, 10 months, 11 months. It haunts me day and night. Against you, David writes in verse 4, and you alone have I sinned. Now, now we know that he sinned against Bathsheba. We know that he sinned against Uriah. But his initial response is, and a good one, and the right one. God, I've offended you. You are a holy God. You are a just God. And I didn't listen to you. I looked at it casually, and I broke your laws. I've sinned against you. I've done evil what's in your sight. Down in verse 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me and let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. This is a man that has come and understood how heinous his sin is. And this is prayer, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That's an odd request for those who are living this side of the cross. Because those who are part of God's family, have the Holy Spirit living in them. Back before the cross, God sent the Holy Spirit at different times and different, uh, in different people to accomplish different tasks. For 9, 10, 11 months, the Spirit wasn't making any impact in David. And he saw that he says, please don't take the Spirit. I, I want that back. Verse 12, restore me to the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And then he says in verse 17, the sacrifice you desire, God, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentive heart. Uh, Let's go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 reflects some more just David's heart. Verse 1, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of their sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord is cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. He, He says this, when I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, finally, verse 5, I confessed my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Why God is gracious, I don't know. Why God desires deeply to have a relationship with us, I don't know. But for the most part, we are so casual toward disobedience. And we think we get away with it. David learned. 
I, I don't want to be apart from you, God. I want this spirit to live in me. I want you to guide me. It's been so heavy for so long. None of these lies worked. I listened to myself, my flesh. Oh God, please restore me. I confess, I repent. I just want to hear you. I want to walk with you. What an amazing story about God. And what a great story about a man after God's own heart. Not a hero because he ran. But a hero because he came back. He recognized how much pain that he had caused. And as I look at this, there are certain takeaways, certain things that we need to remember. But all sin deceives. All sin deceives. And that when we sin, when we disobey, whether we put it in little categories or not, it is all foremost against God, the Almighty God. And it breaks our relationship and hurts us and and forces us to live life not in God's presence, on our own. God doesn't direct us, not at all. All sin is heinous, all sin. And sin brings death and consequences. But what's so amazing here is all sin can be forgiven. But confession and repentance is required for restoration. God does forgive. But if we don't confess, if we don't repent, if we don't own, if we don't agree with God on the nature of our actions and our thoughts, there's no restoration God uses the word of God to convict us. God uses people who are godly to convict us. But remember, forgiveness doesn't mean our consequences disappear. God gives you grace. (laughs) But there are always consequences. And so many of us learn the hard way. Wouldn't you love to sit your 12-year-old down? Say, honey, would you learn this? Your 14-year-old son, please don't go down this path. Would you listen to Jesus? Would you walk with him? There will be joy. There will be fulfillment. If you don't, it will be carnage. You know, Gordon McDonald uses an illustration in his book, and I'm going to end with this. He, he wrote a book called Building Below the Waterline. And it helps us understand how really important it is to have a critical, good relationship with God. We call it our up relationship here. But how important it is for each one of us to walk with God, to listen to God. The illustration is about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, the bridge that joins Manhattan to Brooklyn. The chief engineer of this bridge wrote in June of 1872. To the casual onlooker, it may look like we haven't done any work on the bridge. 
because you don't see any evidence of it. I would say that during this past winter, we poured the same amount of concrete in the foundation, the part you can't see under the waterline, that we will use to build the entire bridge above the waterline. Do you understand how important it is to have a firm foundation to be well-connected with God? Because if you do, you'll be able to stand the stress. The problems, the issues. What action steps do you need to take today? Maybe some of you need to confess. Maybe some of it's repent. Maybe we're going to pray differently for people in our families, in our flock. Maybe we're not going to stand aside if we see somebody going down a path of destruction. Maybe we're just going to look at God differently. Would you close your eyes with me? As I said, I hate the story. But the story to me tells me how important it is to walk with my God. The story reminds me I am five steps away from destroying my life and my loved ones. May we recognize how gracious God is. And we are going to sing after I pray, Restore My Soul. Lindsay sang it for us first. But we're going to sing it. And and maybe as we sing it and we see how amazing the cross is and how much God loves us and how much God wants us to walk with Him, maybe this song will be different because... We heard a story about a man after God's own heart. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you you just didn't skip this story. God, may we walk with you. May we see your word as life-giving, not life-taking. And Father, when we fail... Would we repent quickly? We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.